This podcast is brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton, originally airing on Sirius XM. Welcome to our Behind the Markets podcast. I'm your host, Jeremy Schwartz. Alongside Wharton Frank Professor Jeremy Siegel, we tackle the latest market trends every week on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School, Sirius XM, channel 132. Welcome to Behind the Markets here on Business Radio. Powered by the Warren School. I'm your host, Jeremy Schwartz, Global CIO at Wisdom Tree. We have a special co host today, Rick Harper, who's the head of fixed income and currency for Wisdom Tree. Uh, please note, Rick and I are registered representatives of Foresight Fund Services, Professor Siegel, Senior Advisor to Wisdom Tree. Our discussion is not tied to the offer or sale of investment products, and the views of our guests are their own and not those of Wisdom Tree affiliates. Professor Siegel, we've got you for some commentary here. Uh, the, some big inflation numbers. You've been focused on inflation, the Fed. Uh, what's your read on today's report? Yeah, well, I think uh, in a, actually a little sigh of relief because uh, the whisper number uh, could have been a little higher than the official. It hit uh, the official, actually exceeded by one-tenth on the overall. But uh, the, the uh, a lot of people were talking about over 1% for the month. And when it didn't come in there, I think there was kind of a relief rally on both the equities and on the other uh, side. It also means that... Uh, you know, the, the the Fed does not have to panic right yet. I still think they're way behind the curve. I, I think they're going to have to make many more pivots towards a much more rapid increase in rates. Um, uh, and, and, and because I think inflation is going to be much more persistent into the early uh, months uh, and middle months of next year. But at this particular point, uh, the scenario is double the taper rate that will come out. Uh, it's going to be interesting to see the dot plot, which is their expectation of rate increases. Um, it's going to be much more aggressive than September. Uh, however, I think it, as uh, as time goes on, it's going to have to even get much more aggressive than what they think right now. Last week, I think you brought some really big news when you said you thought the Fed eventually was going to have to maybe invert the curve with their, their increases is as you think about the managing through this cycle, like what do you think where you know next year people are saying two hikes, maybe three, what do you think is practical for what they if, if your view on inflation plays yeah. out as you see it, like what do you think they could They'll do? They'll have next to move year? much more aggressive. There I think, you know, I, I honestly think that they would have to be at the two uh, percent minimum by the end of next year, which you know, given the current ten year is is inverting. Um, and they may have to go higher. And I, I think I also mentioned next year that I think um, we're going to see flatter and more inverted curves in the future than we have seen in the past uh, because of that tremendous hedge demand for the long bonds. And uh, uh, it, it doesn't have quite the ominous implications that it used to have, like, uh, you know, every inversion followed by a recession. In other words, Strong inversions will be followed by a recession. That would be the Fed raising the 4 or 5% and the long bond being at 25 at that particular juncture. Um, then I think you're going to see a recession. But that's way down the road. Uh, the first year that the Fed starts raising rates actually is a pretty good year for stocks. Um, you know, uh, earnings are still going to be great. Uh, they're real assets. And, um, uh, you know, uh, Tina, well, uh, there is no alternative, still rules. <laughs> Rick, you focus a lot on fixed income for us. What any any comments or any questions for the professor? First, from your view. Well, one of the questions I have is obviously the last 10 years have been professor been defined by Fed using all the tools at its disposal. You know, in terms of their policy mix going forward, especially given some of the structural market realities they face, you know, what other tools do you think they might employ other than uh, other than raising interest rates uh, in addressing maybe something like the reserve lifting the reserve requirement to slow that money growth? Yeah, I mean, uh, they would have to. There's so much excess reserves now in the system that to use effectively reserve requirements, they would have to raise them pretty dramatically. Uh, I think they're going to use the interest rate tool. That should, you know, that should be enough uh, because that should curtail loan growth and deposit growth 
um, which is what they have to do. The money supply, which, you know, I look at very, very closely, is still uh, uh, increasing well into double-digit rates, uh, and you cannot control inflation at that rate. They're going to have to curtail that growth of, of that liquidity, and the way to do that is, is to raise uh, the rates. Another way, you're right, if they start raising those reserve requirements, um, but they have not used that tool for so long. My feeling is that they're going to do the they're going to do the rate increase uh, um, certainly for for quite a while. Now to get to two yeah, percent, they'd have to do a fifty bit hike if they're not starting in the first. Yeah, they would have to do well. You know, they have eight eight meetings. Correct. I mean, they have eight meetings a year. So if they do only a quarter every time, that's two. Uh, and if they don't start until March, April, May. Uh, they would have to do something. Now, if we get some bad reports, like six tenths, seven tenths, starting, continuing in the middle of the year, they're going to have to go 50. Um, and I don't think the market is now expecting that. So, you know, that that's going to be tremors, as I, as I call them, that are going to be hitting uh, equities uh, next year. But again, people are going to say, hey, where, where am I? I can't go into bonds. I can't, you know, cash. You know, it's still way below the rate of inflation. Um, you know, equities are still the are still a place to be. Do you think the the end of the cycle we see a positive uh, real rate of return on bonds? Yeah, I, I I think I think we will. You know, bonds. I don't know about the long bond, but the short end I think is going to have to go positive. Um, don't forget, I think inflation is going to wane. Don't forget, there's the official numbers of inflation, which are. Uh, I think we had inflation actually this year closer to 10%. If you actually use the actual changes in home prices, rental prices, imputed prices. I mean, if you take a look at the housing year over year, and I just looked at the, today's data, it still looks 3 to 4% above a year ago. Well, anyone that's been out in the market knows way above that. It's the way they collect the data. Uh, and so really, we've had a lot more inflation. It's going to be coming through the statistics, but uh, we've actually had a lot more, and it could be drifting down through next year. I'm still calling for 20 to 25% cumulative inflation for three to four years um, in, in, unless they really stop this growth of the money supply because I really think that liquidity is already into the system. Yeah, in terms of, obviously it puts a very heavy burden on Powell and his communication skills and navigating yeah. and massaging the market. Um, and for guidance obviously could play a big role. Um, do you, do you foresee what do you think is this uh, approach going to be the forward guidance this coming year? Well, I mean, the, 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 which means that, I mean, that's what I think he's going to say and open the door in his discussion. Uh, don't forget, the, he has a press conference. Uh, we'll say he'll probably ask the question, what happens if inflation doesn't die down? You know, would you have to raise rates further? And I think he now has to say that. He's been reluctant to say that. But he say, if it does not calm down next year, we will have to raise faster than, than we now have projections to do it. Uh, he could reiterate his hopes that it will die down. But I think he has to open the door that he's got to be more aggressive. And then as the data comes out on a monthly basis, and we got, we, on Tuesday we got producer prices, which are also important to look at. Um, and of course, we always have the commodity prices that are every day. Uh, oil is going back up at 71, 72 after dropping to the low 60s. I mean, it's really halfway back to its high. We, um, you know, if, if we have, uh, he's going to have to open that door, I think, uh, on uh, next Wednesday during his, uh, uh, his uh, news conference. How much do you think the, the shift in Fed voting is going to help him out in that regard? Because I think um, you have Bullock, you have Messner, um, and George uh, joining the voting committee next year. Yeah, so I think it's going to be on the hawk, more on the hawkish side. I, I, I've, been, I've been surprised there hasn't been more, dis, you know, there's been no dissent so far towards a more aggressive policy, although I think some of the non-voting members probably, you know, uh, voice their concern. And, and um uh, so I think, you know, I think it's, it's, he's going to be pushed in that direction. Listen, the Biden administration now is pushing in that direction. That's the big change. Uh, that the heat that Biden has taken, you know, you know, he could remain, and, and now he's been reappointed. He can, he can afford to be 
much more aggressive right now and and uh and and, and not uh, uh you know uh, keep dovish as 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 he has been Maybe if we could pivot from just the Fed, uh, it's going to be really interesting next week. Follow on, Professor. The the equity markets, the, this week you had some, when I when I look at the, within the internals of the equities, there were some uh, sort of the high flyer growth stocks, sort of what you call the unprofitable tech basket, seemed to come off in a pretty big way. Is that all, is that all tied yeah, to this Fed? Yeah, I think Fed that's view? part of the pivot. I mean, I, I think the pivot is, oh, my God, if they're going to be higher real rates or higher nominal rates and real rates. I've got to worry about those long-term cash flow, um, uh, so-called unprofitable tech, and I think that that that's that really started, you know, the, the, when the pivot started, and I think it continued that squeak. I mean, the the, the profitable techs did real well, um, and uh, the non-profitable techs did not, and I think that's completely related to the pivot. I'm going to give you a lot of credit for calling it the Powell Pivot. I think you were the first one I ever heard saying that, and <laughs> now I see Powell Pivot everywhere. So, uh, <laughs> Yeah. Well, uh, well I, I, I think he had to do it, and I'm, 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 I'm not surprised. He, he started getting the political heat as, as well as uh, you know the, uh, the data that was coming in. All right, Professor. Well, thanks for taking some time. We'll look forward to the dissection next week. Yeah, next week we'll talk about it, too. Thank you, Professor. We have a really interesting show today. Uh, we have two guests with Rick and I for the hour, uh, and one of them is a former colleague of Rick's. We're talking with the founders of Handle Indexes. Uh, and so Handle Indexes is a fairly interesting new concept, uh, and, and we're going to talk to uh, David Cohen and Matt Peterson about their idea behind Handle. Uh, Rick, welcome to Behind the Markets, and Dave and, and Matt, thanks for coming. Well, thanks for having us, Jeremy. Maybe we could yeah, start with you. Dave. Us, D- Dave, maybe introduce yourself uh, and some of your background working with Rick in the past, and then Matt, you could do the same, and then we'll come towards your idea for Handle before we maybe just introduce yourselves to, to the listeners. Well, um, you know, I've been in product development uh, since I graduated, uh, in, I guess, in 1991, and, and at that point in time, uh, I used to sit at a desk uh, next to Rick. Uh, where Rick was initially an intern and then came and worked at Nuveen. And and we worked together uh, for for quite many years in in Chicago. And I attribute most of the success of of Handles to the fact that I sat next to to Rick um, (laughs) in in Chicago. Uh, Subsequently, we went to um, and did a couple of other things in in Chicago. I worked uh, with Zach's and I worked with Claymore. And and at Claymore Securities, uh, we created... um, some products Matt and I together we worked on um, he, he worked for the index provider that created a product called bullet shares and that was a very innovative product uh, and that's kind of how our history goes together and, and then Matt uh, Matt's history is in the securities business uh, for, as a security lawyer and I'll, I'll let you introduce yourself Matt yeah as, as David Seven is saying I, I worked with him uh, back at Claymore when uh, I was actually still working as a uh, lawyer uh, primarily and uh, I was going back to school part-time for an MBA and met some some guys, uh, and one of them had a really interesting idea for, for an investment product that, that turned out to be bullet shares. Um, and I decided it would be more fun to, to try and start uh, an index provider with, with those guys than, than to keep lawyering. Uh, and here I am um, uh, 12 years later still doing it. That will be between the four of us uh, with Rick, myself, and the two of you. We have a lot of product development expertise, so I'm sure we could bounce a bunch of ideas around. But, Rick, w- w- in terms of the, the history with David, anything you want to highlight or anything you want to go into first to start off the conversation? Well, you know, thank you for all the credit you've given me for handles. Uh, it's probably <laughs> probably appropriate. Um, Dave and I were we came in at a unique time in Nadine. Um well, Naveen was pushing to do things beyond the muni area, and Dave and I were at the forefront of some developments. And, it, and it's interesting that, you know, Naveen is, has um, given birth to a lot of different ETF sponsors, PowerShares, Claymore, that Dave mentioned earlier, my little shop, ETF Advisors. And eventually alumni from all this have gone on to First Trust, uh, Wisdom Tree, and a whole bunch. So... You know, while Naveen was late to the ETF game, some of the initial 
work that was done uh, was very was really um, pivotal in some of the developments we've seen in ETFs. So maybe, maybe yeah, and I would say I would say from our perspective, Nuveen, you know, uh, not only Dave's history there, but just their background in closed end funds um, is something that we also both worked in in the past, and and that kind of um, served as an inspiration for for the development of handles. So, you know, it is it is actually pretty accurate to say that 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 background and history led us to where we are. So, so we've we've uh, we've danced around it, but let's talk about what is handles. Uh, what got to creating what is handle, uh, and 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 that a very first idea of what is handle index is trying to do. Well, we we're really trying to respond to you know the income needs of investors, um, and we try and you know look at from a product development perspective, we try and look at you know what other products are out there that investors are using. To meet their needs and you know what what can you do to maybe to create a better alternative and you know historically um you know for for income investors closed-end funds have been a very popular vehicle you know they like um uh, the exposure to diversified portfolios they like high managed distributions that give them predictable income uh, in many cases they're comfortable with you know modest amounts of leverage in the portfolio uh and closed-end funds have been so popular, they've raised hundreds of billions of dollars, and there's actually ETFs of closed-end funds um, that represent a billion-dollar-plus uh, product category. Uh, and the problem with closed-end funds is, as, as you all know, they don't uh, typically trade at NAV like ETFs do. They have um, usually either a premium or, in most cases, a discount to NAV that they trade at in the marketplace. Uh, and that that discount or premium fluctuates over time. It's volatility without return. And so one of our thoughts was, listen, we can deliver a very similar product as a closed-end fund with a high-managed distribution, with a diversified portfolio, perhaps a modest amount of leverage. Uh, and we could do it without that premium discount volatility simply by holding it as an ETF of ETFs, uh, and then applying, you know, modest leverage at the, the parent fund level. And that was really kind of the, the inspiration for the idea. Um, and, you know, we think it's a, a big part of the reason we've been able to appeal to income investors. Let me ask a question, because this is interesting on the, the volatility without returns as the discount in the closed end space widens subtracts. Why do you think um, that closed with the closed end strategy hasn't been brought to ETFs? Is it that the leverage rules were restricted before and now it's changing? Is there a reason why ETFs haven't done more what the traditional closed end fund has done? In your views, Be curious to hear what yeah, too. absolutely. I think it's it's been leverage limitations that have been a big um, part of the issue. You know, as you know, historically, the ETF industry has operated basically on exemptive relief from the very beginning. You know, that the, there is no provision of the, the Investment Company Act of 1940 that provides for ETFs. And in order to operate an ETF, you have to um, have exemptive relief from various provisions of the act uh, in order to not violate them. And the SEC has kind of handed out these um exemptions over time on a piecemeal basis. Uh, and in the case of leverage, um, they gave a few firms the ability to use leverage in the ETF structure, and then they stopped issuing exemptions to do that. Um, and so that has really kind of retarded the growth of strategies in that space um, that would employ even modest amounts of leverage. Um, and that's loosening up now, as we've seen uh, the SEC issue a new rule that's going to per permit, you know, broader use of leverage by different uh, fund sponsors. Yeah, one aspect, Matt, it, you hit on it. You know, leverage: how much is too much? How much is pragmatic? You know, because it can be a fairly intimidating um, concept to a lot of investors. Um, in the in developing the index, how did you guys go about figuring? What was the right amount of leverage for the strategy? 
Well, we really started with trying to figure out what type of portfolio uh, would be able to support high distribution levels over time. Uh, and we looked at historical returns going back um, to to um, the early 80s to see, you know, if you paid out high levels of distributions, what type of portfolio uh, would have the best chance of paying that distribution out over, say, a 20-year time without um, running out of assets. And that's kind of what our base portfolio is, and we would refer to that as the NASDAQ five-handle index, which um, is an unleveraged index. It assumes no leverage, and you know we're targeting a 5% total return with that portfolio, which is a mix of bond ETFs and equity ETFs. Um, to go up to the seven-handle, which is targeting a 7% distribution over the long term, um, we're looking at a 1.3x on that underlying base index. So it's essentially... Which is a 130. Yeah, that's a basically long 130, short 30 cash, or um, 23% structural leverage. Um, and so to put that into perspective, you know, what type of risk that entails, um, you know, the volatility of the portfolio since it launched uh, has been around 8% per year or roughly half of that of the S&P 500. So even with, um, you know, 23% structural leverage, the portfolio itself is um, not especially volatile. Let, let me reintroduce our guests. We're talking with David. Of also what you're leveraging. Sorry. Let, let me just quickly reintroduce just for people listening. We're talking with David Cohen and, and Matt Pedersen, who's, co-founders of Handle Indexes, about a very interesting new concept. We have Rick Harper, who's head of fixed income at Wisdom Tree. I'm Jeremy Schwartz. Um, the, the, there's a lot of terms in there, with, with uh, and, and leverage can sound scary and confusing, and I want to help bring it down for people. Um, when you talked about, let, let's go through that 23% structural leverage. Sort of go through that a little bit more. What does that mean? What's the difference when you said, hey, you're 130 invested, but you're 30% short cash? What, how does that work to this 23% structural leverage? What does that all mean? Essentially, you start out with $100. You borrow $30, and you buy $130 worth of securities. So if you take that $30 of leverage that you've borrowed and you divide that by 130 23% is, you know, your leverage is a percentage of the total portfolio. And essentially all these things are the same thing. A 130-30 and 23% structural leverage. Um, and meaning all these things are exactly, mean the same thing. You're essentially um, gaining additional exposure uh, to an underlying core portfolio or base portfolio. And that's, that's kind of the essence of why you would, you know, so one of the reasons why you do it inside of an ETF, because all ETFs uh, have to be done for a reason. The only reason they're successful is if they actually provide some kind of value added in the marketplace and they make something easier to trade. And I think you've discovered that at Wisdom Tree and you, you've seen that with your, you know, your own product lines is that the winners are the things that, that make it easier to trade. So. We, let's go to the cost of leverage. Like when you think about that borrowing of thirty percent. Now you guys are an index provider. There's ETFs that 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 track your products uh, at the index level. Let's talk about how. What is the cost of of leverage today? And then I might ask Rick to talk about the cost of leverage in futures because that that's sort of a question we get a, a lot as well. Is how, how when when people use futures to access some 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 leverage to portfolios, there a different cost. But uh, any 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 sense of the cost of leverage, how that might change if we're getting to a new Fed hiking cycle. That'll tease out the conversation with Professor Siegel that we're going to be having uh, in just a few moments. Yeah, the, I mean, the cost of leverage is going to depend upon how you, you, you get that leverage. And obviously, kind of the old-fashioned way um, is to, you know, either get a, a bank line of credit or, you know, closed-in funds, you know, oftentimes issue preferred shares. Um, to do that. And that actually involves, you know, directly borrowing money and putting it to work. 
Um, but as you noted, there's other ways to effectively get leverage, um, including futures, but also um, uh, swaps. And so I think in the case of most ETFs that are employing um, leverage, they are um, using swaps with banks who are agreeing to provide a certain return stream in return for, you know, the swap collateral. Um, and so it's, it's hard to know in those scenarios exactly what um, the cost of the leverage is, but it is based on the funding costs of your counterparts, i.e. these banks, uh, and those funding costs uh, and the current interest rate um, are, are very low. To your point, um, to the extent inflation continues to be persistent, you would expect to see uh, interest rates uh, certainly on the long end go up, and you would expect it to ultimately force the Fed's hand uh, on the short end of the curve and force them to raise short-term borrowing rates. Uh, and those increases in costs would absolutely show up, um, you know, in the terms on your on your swap agreements um, that that you're getting to to access that leverage. And Rick, in the futures market, how how do you see it today? Yeah, the futures market, obviously, given where interest rates are right now in the short end, it's really it's really pretty um, minimal in terms of the cost of the futures to put on leverage, uh, specifically in the Treasury futures market. Um, obviously, as, if the Fed gets more active, that's going to bite a little bit and costs are going to go up a little bit. Well, let's talk through with David and Matt. What, when you build your, you sort of said the five handle, the, the Nasdaq five handle index is the base, and then you, uh, and if you go to the, the handles for for everybody, handles is h a n d l s indexes dot com is where you can find some information on the handles indexes. You, you show, you know, on your main page the five handle, and then you have a whole graphic from five, seven, ten, twelve, fifteen. So it sounds like you're going to have a family of handles indexes, but talk about what's in the makeup of the seven handle index and what are the types of assets that you, that got you to that 8% volatility that you mentioned that was there on the, on the seven handle. Uh, Sure. The the actual portfolio itself is, is split into um, two components. One is what we call a a core portfolio, which is uh, just a 70, 30 aggregate bond, large cap equity, um, split that's rebalanced on a monthly basis. Uh, and then the other 50% of the portfolio um, consists of 12 ETFs from 12 different income-oriented asset classes, you know, including things like investment-grade corporates and REITs and high-yield bonds, MLPs, um, uh, dividend equities, and, and others. Uh, and those are rebalanced on a monthly basis using a Dorsey, NASDAQ Dorsey write algorithm that incorporates momentum and yield and volatility. Um, you know, what we're trying to do with the portfolio is really kind of build off the teachings of modern portfolio theory, which, um, you know, suggests that, you know, the way there is a portfolio out there that can you know, maximize risk-adjusted return. That is the amount of return you get per unit of volatility. Um, And given that portfolio, you know, you should invest in it. And if you want to take on more risk, um, you should use leverage to enhance your exposure to it. And you'll earn, you know, higher returns, risk-adjusted returns than you would if you you invested in another more risky category. That's the idea behind that whole series of funds. It's a way to give investors uh, who have greater risk exposure more leverage so that they can have the same portfolio and generate the same risk-adjusted returns but do it, you know, enhanced with leverage. When, when you think about the Dorsey Wright, uh, they're very famous for making that sector rotation type of call. When you think about the leverage, is there an element of there's a, a core component that gets allocated to and then then certain things are more dynamic? Or when you think about what is being levered in that, you know, the extra 30, is it just proportional to the entire index? How does the leverage work combined with the, the Dorsey Wright signals? It would really just be proportionate to the entire index. Um, 
so yeah, it wouldn't it wouldn't be segregated in any particular um, portion of it. Yeah, over the lifetime of the index Madden days, what kind of evolution have you seen in the weightings within the Dorsey Wright uh, component uh, with the momentum and yield to risk? I mean, I think the index has been live for a little over three years, four years. Uh, yes. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's it's been yeah yeah a little bit more than uh, three or four years. I think. Go ahead, Matt. I'm sorry. Yeah, there's definitely a fair amount of – we do have guardrail or, or limits on how small or large a position could get in that particular um, part of the portfolio. So no position gets um, larger than 7.5% of the portfolio. But you do see – go ahead, Dave. It, you do, it does fit together. I mean, these, these two things do. The, the idea is, you know, we, we, we're shooting for the optimal portfolio. Uh, we're not, we don't have enough hubris to think we actually created the optimal portfolio, but we, we think that the optimal portfolio is somewhere in that area. And, you know, it, it occurs to us that on, on occasions, um, you know, momentum does outperform, uh, you know, a core kind of buy and hold 70-30 long-term strategy, which – you know, when we looked historically over the last 50 years, 70-30, about 70-30 had the, the, you know, the best risk-adjusted returns. But over those periods of times, you do have periods where momentum does significantly outperform. Um, and and you, you're really looking to, to balance that off between the two sides and, and develop something that provides, a, you know, a better, again, a better sharp risk-adjusted return uh, profile to deliver, you know, the primary objective, which is a solution uh, that delivers a, 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 a uh, you know, kind of predictable monthly uh, return to investors. Yeah. Can, can you talk a little bit, guys, about the difference in your mind between cash flow and some of the SEC definitions of yield, um, as well as the concept of return of capital might not be a bad thing? Yeah. Um, and this is where I, I really think that the ETF of ETF structure has really been underutilized so far. Um, and I, and I, I expect to see a lot of growth in that, that category in the years to come. Um, you know, I think it's important for people to understand that return of capital is a tax concept. Uh, it's not an economic concept. Um, and all it means is that a portion of a distribution that you receive um, is not considered income for tax purposes, you know, and people will often say, well, that means I'm just getting my own money back. Um, and from our perspective, that's not the case. You know, ultimately what matters, what income you have available is based on the total return of your portfolio, not just the distribution. Um, you know, if you have uh, a stock that pays you a 5% dividend but goes down, um, you know, 20%, you know, you don't feel any better because that 5% was taxable income. You know, you're, you're still down 15%. Um, so from our perspective, if your fund is paying you a managed distribution and, you know, the, the NASDAQ 7 Handle Index ETF pays a 7% annualized managed distribution, some of that is going to be classified as a return of capital for tax purposes. But the issue of whether you've made money or not depends upon how the fund has performed on a total return basis. And if the fund has earned 7% and you've collected a 7% distribution, well, then, you know, the fund earned its distribution regardless of how that distribution was taxed. Um, so, the great thing about the ETF of ETF structures is it's able to rebalance the portfolio on a regular basis uh, and generate cash flows to pay these managed distributions and do so without generating tax consequences. Uh, and that's something that uh, individual investors cannot do in their own portfolios. So we think there's, you know, a lot of potential for, uh, the industry to grow in this area to offer investors tax advantage distribution yields, you know, that still reflect the actual economic returns of the underlying portfolios. 
We looked at this return of capital concept, um, I don't know, Rick, probably was four or five years ago. Um, and one of the questions was, do you run out of, do you, can you lower the cost basis at, at some point to zero so you run out of these return of capital? Does that matter at all? Um, and uh, in, in your mind, as long as you're generating returns, you're, you're able to distribute those gains tax-free in a way. And, and if you have a structural upward bias to the portfolio, you're just... You're going to lower your cost basis, but your cost basis is rising because these things are, well, it, what, what's, what's, the, what's the general sense on that? Can you go to zero? Uh, yeah, in theory, an individual, you know, it, so if, if you collect, a, you know, a, let's say you have a $100 investment and you collect a $0.10 cent distribution uh, and, you know, $0.05 cents of that is return of capital, well, you're your basis in that investment would then go down to 95. Um, and you would, if you sold it in the future, you know, have a capital gain if you sold it for a hundred. Uh, and if you keep that process going over and over again, to your point, it is conceivable that you could reduce your basis to zero. And once you get there, you, you know, an individual investor can no longer um, take it down any lower um, but that would probably take at least 20 years to happen. So, um, you know, it's, it's probably not a, a situation that most investors need to be concerned about. But the great thing is, is, you know, when you do take your your return in that form, one, you know, if you hold for more than a year, you'll get long-term capital gains treatment on it. Uh, but, you know, in the unfortunate situation or circumstance that you end up dying, you know, your heirs will inherit that asset and they'll get a step up in the basis and, and nobody will ever pay taxes on the game. Right. There's a lot of, that's a lot of, there's a lot of interesting planning that people can do around that kind of, uh, kind of strategy. You know, in terms of just maybe take a, take another look at the total return that profile we've talked about and maybe just a little feedback on what environments, near term environments, would the strategy do very well in? And what are some of the environments that if they manifest themselves, would the investor would need to be a little more cautious? Uh, sure. There's, uh, we do have significant exposure to fixed income, um, particularly on the core portfolio. That half of the core portfolio is 70-30 fixed income equity. And, um, you know, obviously the first, uh, half of this year, we saw yields on the 10-year back up pretty significantly, and that definitely creates drag uh, on the portfolio. Uh, and then the in the the equity portion of that core portfolio, um, we have uh, uh, one of the the large cap equity holdings is the QQQ uh, ETF. We are you know a Nasdaq branded index, so we do have. Um, some more exposure to that tech-heavy index than some other um, types of balanced funds. So a scenario where <clears throat> interest rates are going up fast uh, and the queues are underperforming, the broader stock market is kind of um, the the less the, the least good scenario for us. Um, and conversely, you know, when we see um, uh, growth stocks doing well relative to the broader market and the bond market um, rallying. We, we've traditionally seen very good performance relative to our, our peer group. We're going to be able to continue this conversation in the second half. We're going to end up coming back with Professor Siegel for the second half of the show. But before we turn there, one one other question I have just to help. You know, We talked a, about, a bit about the portfolio and that what you just said was the 70-30 fixed income equities in the five handle index. And then we talked about sort of the, the 23% structural leverage or 130-30, where long 130 and, and short 30. So for the seven handle, um, if you're making that math simple for people, um, is, it, is, it, is it right to say the overall mix, maybe describe the overall mix between the fixed income and equities in that final seven handle index to make sure everybody gets their math right? It would still be, um, you know, the aggregate portfolio would still be 70-30, but when you take into account the 
Dorsey Red Explorer portion that could fluctuate probably between um, 60, 40 fixed income equity versus, you know, maybe a little higher than 70, 30. But I would say the current, currently the index actually has uh, heavier allocations to equities in the NASDAQ Dorsey Wright portion. So I think it's probably uh, on the aggregate, probably closer to 60 fixed income, 40 equity, but that can fluctuate slightly. Okay. Very good. Well, we're going to continue this conversation on the very interesting seven-handle index. Using structural leverage is a a very interesting concept. We've got uh, the two co-founders, Dave Cohen, Matt Pedersen. We've got Rick Harper. I'm Jeremy Schwartz. I think we did a pretty good review, Dave and Matt, of just the overall concept, the use of leverage, and how it all comes together. Maybe let's talk, you know, we all, all four of us uh, with Rick, myself, and the two of you have a lot of product history, product development prowess. Let's, let's talk about what is the future of the, the handles. Your, your, your website shows more than the seven handle index. What are you thinking about as you, as you evolve over time? Well, our, our objective is to create a suite of indexes that will c- cater to, you know, any investor's risk preferences. Um, you know, you, you see, uh, you know, obviously people have different degrees to, of risk to, uh, that they're, they're comfortable with, you know, and, and I think the word leverage has some very negative connotations. Um, you know, we want to focus on, you know, delivering solid risk-adjusted returns, um, and then investors can determine for themselves, you know, how much volatility they're comfortable with. And, you know, if they want a very conservative portfolio that um, is designed to pay out a reasonably decent income stream, our five-handle index, you know, has no leverage, provides um, diversified exposure to a lot of different sources of income. Um, but, you know, for investors that want more than that, um, you know, we think that they're better off using a little bit of leverage with a well-diversified portfolio than they are making concentrated bets in, you know, very risky categories. Um, and, you know, I don't know if I'm allowed to mention other products out there on the market, but this is, you know, really similar to, you know, funds that, um, get exposure to both stocks and bonds uh, and use some leverage to get returns that are comparable to, say, uh, the S&P 500, but they can do it with less volatility because they've got that diversification working in their favor. And that's really what we're trying to bring to the income investing market is well-diversified portfolios that give investors the opportunity to take on more risk to the extent there is interested in enhancing their potential returns. So we would go out and we would go up to replicate. Handle. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah, so we would say five handles. Yeah. Five handles, seven handle, ten handle. You know, you, you could decide for yourself how much risk you're you're comfortable taking. And the cool thing is is that by having them all be built off of the same base handle index, you can kind of customize what, what you want yourself. So, you know, a, 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 a 10 and a 7, 50-50 is an 8.5. Or a 5 and a 7, 50-50 is a 6. So they kind of all work together, sort of like Lego, like Legos. Right. Well, so we, we, we started off earlier in the conversation saying that part of the, the issue is what the SEC is willing to allow or what you're allowed to do from a leverage perspective. How levered can you go? How levered would you be willing to go when you think about what's the, the ultimate at the high end? So if you go from five, five handle to 15 handle, you know, what's the leverage look like if you go up towards you know, something like a 15 handle? It probably wouldn't be possible to get that high realistically under um, the new um, you know, rules in place. You know, 10 handle is probably as high as you would be able to get in the ETF structure, um, you know, to do something um, with more leverage would probably entail using an alternative approach. Um, so, and, you know, honestly, uh, you know, that is what it is. We think that, I mean, I think that, again, coming back to that notion that leverage is kind of a dirty word, 
you know, I think ultimately you have to look at the actual volatility of the portfolio. You know, there are a lot of ETFs out there that have extraordinary amount of volatility without any leverage whatsoever. Um, and, right. you know, you could have a moderately leveraged balance portfolio that has relatively modest amount of volatility. So I don't think it's the best way to evaluate the riskiness of portfolios. But the reality is, is you know, the rules are there and probably 10 handle as high as you could go in an ETF format. Rick, I want to come to you on what you heard from Professor Siegel about the inversion of the curve and what that means for the futures market and other things. As, as you think about if that, A, you could react to what he said, um, but also, you know, what is that, if that were to develop and you'd have an inverted curve for a much longer period of time, what does it mean for, for strategies that have leverage like this? Well, obviously, it puts a little heat on the strategies of leverage, depending on what, how you obtain the leverage. Um, but obviously, it's going to be more costly, um, and you're going to need, you're going to put more stress on the asset performance, uh, the underlying asset performance. Um, so you expect the benefits to decline uh, somewhat, um, and possibly you want you want to deleverage a little bit. But it, it's we'll see. We haven't had a, an inversion of negative two for a long, long time. And I think we were down three-month tenure during the 2003-2007. I think got down about negative 75. And we've only had two other periods uh, even comparable to that before 19, after 1990. So um, it's a really unique environment that he's talking about. Dave, do you have any comments on what, the, what you heard from the professor? Um, well, I think that I, I, I liked his uh, pointing out that the actual inflation rate is really much higher than the reported inflation rate and that we're going to be – we should expect to experience the data to reflect it for quite a while. Yeah. And and in terms of the the future for product, I guess we in, – in, in terms of how uh, it's, is – is levered handle index is really what you're focused on? Any other places you guys are are working hard that you want to bring some attention to? Yeah, I think uh, handles is obviously a big focus of us uh, for us in the near term. But we we see uh, you know it's interesting. When I started at Claymore back in 2006, the CEO told me they were getting into the ETF business and, and I was so clueless. I said, haven't all the ETFs we need already been created? Um, and you know, one thing I've learned since then is that, you know, the world is constantly changing. Um, and you know, there's always new product development opportunities on the horizon. And I don't think we've really begun to scratch the surface in the ETF space of what this structure can do relative to mutual funds. And I mean, I think you're seeing um, a lot of the big mutual fund sponsors, you know, start to recognize that with their conversions to ETFs. Um, we see a lot of opportunities to take advantage of the tax efficiencies of the ETF structure to deliver solutions that, um, you know, aren't necessarily handled based, but um, are ways to deliver you know, tax advantage income streams to investors that yeah. are superior to other alternatives in the space. So we, that, that, that I, think point. The, yeah, I think, you know, given all our experiences, what we've seen is the regulatory certainty, obviously we're not uh, doing anything on an inductive letter anymore, and the regulatory friction has really dramatically increased our ability to create products, uh, which is great. And I think you'll see in addition to new asset classes becoming more liquid and applicable to ETFs, this new way to package is giving uh, the greater the greater ability to use leverage. Um, and just I think the the knowledge and the acceptance of the vehicle and the asset class and the comfort in the trading has really opened the doors to echoing that statement to what we can do on a product development basis going forward. Rick, as, as you think about um, this idea of the model portfolios, like there's a lot of, I, I really like their point on the different, um, the, the, com the combination of ETFs. It, it is still early days. You, you have seen a few asset allocation, very plain vanilla asset allocation ETFs 
come together. I like that point on things that where the where the ETF structure does particularly well is things with high turnover that you can improve the tax efficiency with. Any other things in your radar? What you're working on? Things that you think are 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 interesting opportunities for future ETFs or things that uh, well, you'd like I, to highlight? I think there's a ton. I think there's greater acceptance that we've seen in our own firm, just tremendous growth in our model portfolio initiative and greater acceptance. What when historically it's been you know either hit or miss on you know kind of a portfolio in a box within an ETF. But I think there's much greater acceptance and there's much greater understanding how I don't, you know, I don't necessarily need this a, a team research team for this asset class. I can, you know, bring in um, an ETF um, that provides a diversified exposure in that one trade. And that's really powerful. And I, I do think conceptualizing and the objective becomes more important of what does the fund produce as opposed to what goes into it. And so I do think that you'll see more different ways to skin the cat and different ways to combine exposures. And I think you'll see much more hybrids of cash securities and ETFs together in, in future products. Um, well, we're, so I think we're just... We're just about out of time. Um, so this has been been a lot of fun. Great to get a reunited between Rick and Dave from their old Nuveen days and Matt. Uh, really interesting work you guys have been doing on any any place where besides the handles indexes want to point to where they can find more information on what you guys are doing. Yeah, sure. Uh, StrategyShares.com. Uh, they are the uh, sponsor of the uh, uh, seven handle index ETF and investors interested in the, the product can certainly go there to find information on it. This has been a lot of fun. Uh, I'm Jeremy Schwartz. You listen to Behind the Markets and Sirius 132. We will we will see you next week. Thanks for listening to the Behind the Markets podcast. If you want to learn more about WisdomTree, visit wisdomtree.com. You can also follow me on Twitter at Jeremy D. Schwartz. I'd like to thank Patty Hall for producing our live program on Sirius XM channel 132 and our podcast producer, Daniel Bruno. Join us next week for another edition of the show. For more insight from Business Radio, please visit businessradio.wharton.upenn.edu. Thank you.